0: folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. What an honor <laughs> it is to uh, bring in a cat who um, has been playing on the bandstand for the last half century, finding his own individual voice in a myriad of different settings, always trying to serve the song. Harvey S. welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show.
1: Well, thank you, Jake. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here huh. and speak with you.
0: You know, I want to read this quote from my interview with Mike Stern and then get your – you can just riff on it any way you want. He said, Harvey S. got this gig back in 1985. He might have been later than that, at 1369 Club. He called me and asked if I'd like to do it. He said, Alan Dawson is going to be playing drums. I might have met Alan when I was playing at Berkeley, but I had never played with him. When we started to play, we hooked up so good, it just felt natural. I love the conversation between musicians, so I'm always trying to hook up with a drummer, and not just time-wise, but response-wise. The drummer first, and then the bass player. It's like the heart and lungs of the band. Somebody was in the audience and taped it, and it really sounds good. Harvey rediscovered it. And now it's coming out on High Note Records, album called Going For It. I'm happy about it because I haven't really been documented in live situations. It's amazing to listen back and hear certain technical things I used to do. I was probably playing more notes than I do now. And he went on to say that you got, I mean, Alan Dawson, who I've chronicled a lot on my show, was a fearless player. I mean, he didn't care if it was rock music, whatever kind of genre, he was ready to take it on. I just kind of wanted you to harken back to that memory and uh, and, and sort of give your own version of it. Oh, okay. Well,
1: essentially, when I got the gig, because uh, I was up there playing, I think with Jack Wilkins or something, and the owner came over to me and he said, you know, you want to come in and bring a band or something. And I said, uh, yeah, I'd like to come in maybe with Mike Stern, because we've been playing a lot together. And uh, so that was established. But then actually what I did was I called Mike, and I said, Mike, uh, I got this gig up in Boston, and I was thinking to use Alan Dawson on the gig. I wanted to see how Mike felt about it, you know. Just to make sure and then and Mike said, Wow, what a great idea <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Okay, then you're down with that then uh then i set, set up the gig and we did uh we did originally two we We're supposed to do two nights, but then there was there was such a big response that they added a night i think it's interesting my, my friend mark myers the uh writer yeah fantastic sure. uh, uh he basically you know he's mr. research and he showed me because I didn't remember all this he showed me a newspaper clipping saying that we were only there two nights and on the Thursday would be a jam session and we weren't listed so um so then I kind of remembered oh yeah they 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 decided to add another night because so many people wanted to come it it was kind of very crowded. There were a lot of people came, and it was a wild audience.
0: <laughs> it's my kind of show. I mean, for a couple questions. I mean, how much experience did you had? You played with Alan before?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, um, I work with Alan, not a lot, but a bunch of times. When when I lived up in Boston before um, I moved to New York, I used to be kind of the house bass player at Lenny's and the Jazz Workshop. Yeah. and and uh so i played with a lot of i played with like you know people like zoot sims and uh i played with oh god i can't remember all that names
0: yeah no i mean you're i want to be clear you're talking late 60s early 70s you were early the house,
1: 70 early 70s at,
0: you were the house bassist at lenny's as well
1: yeah, Lenny's on the Turnpike oh and, God, but there yes. wasn't many but it, it, you know it sounds better than it is. It wasn't a lot of gigs cuz uh but sometimes when they didn't bring in a band, I worked with Mose Allison and Chris Connor and uh Al Cohn and Soot Sims and and uh Charlie Shavers and uh you know I worked with Mose but I you know I worked with them a bunch of different times. And then, you know, uh and that's kind of how I got discovered to come to New York because I, I really didn't think I was, you know, I just didn't have a lot of confidence in my playing. So I, I, I said, well, I'll just stick around Boston. But I I was I was starving, if you really want to know the truth. <laughs> I had no money. I was really down and out uh, because I, there was very few jazz gigs. And, you know, I spent a year in a rock and roll band playing electric bass and singing background. And and you know I was doing that and really you know not not hating it but I was thinking this isn't really what I want to do, um, sure. But but then then I was playing with Chris Conner, and uh, they they uh, and a drummer named Mickey J, which I don't know what ever don't happened know. to him, but oh, no no nobody knows him, <laughs> but but he was a very good drummer. Yeah. And so anyway we played there, and and, and and Michael Benny says, you know, you really should move to New York. And I, and, and I said, really? He said, yeah, you should move to New York. I'll get you some gigs. And I said, well at that time like you know, uh, starvation was knocking at my door so, <clears throat> and not being able to pay the rent. So, I was thinking, okay <laughs> i 'll go anywhere if i if I think I can make enough money to survive uh, and so that that brought me to New York
0: you know it's just funny to hear you say that now, where Boston is not a cheap city, but the idea of, yeah, move to new york i'll get you some gigs. It's like New York is one of the most expensive places in the world, and I mean it remember, wasn't then absolutely not, and I wanted to, for you to just sort of It sound to me, and I was like I said before, I was born in '78, but I remember I I interviewed Will Lee a few months ago, and when he said when he first got to New York, which was around the time you did, he said that almost every apartment or it was kind of a commercial downstairs and then residential upstairs. You had a lot of restaurants and bars, and then then you'd have people living upstairs. I mean, can Hubert Eves, great piano player, described New York as just uh, the color he used was almost gray. It was, it was so unflashy. Uh, you could be sitting next to, you know, I mean, you probably recognize him, but, you know, none of the superstar jazzers or guys were dressing up. You, they wouldn't stand out. You could be on the subway with Thelonious Monk. I mean, it's very unpretentious. And I just wanted you to talk, because I mean, and again, like you said, it wasn't gentrified. The cost of living wasn't that high. It sounded to me like a great place. But my parents always tell me, Jake, you wouldn't want to go into the Lower East Side in the early 1970s. You'd get mugged, you know? So I just, I'm wondering about when you got to New York, just sort of the landscape, how you would describe it in color and tone, and also... um, I mean, traffic has increased 100% and since 2001. It's so congested, or it was before COVID. Just talk about the breathing. I mean, I remember Denny Seywell talking about driving up in a car after the half note into Harlem. You can get there in, you know, 20, 15 minutes. Anyway, you can drift on that any way you want.
1: Well, I mean, there's a, a lot to say. I mean, n- New York was, was, was quite different uh, at that time. It's I think very hard for a lot of people who weren't there right. to to imagine it. Uh, first thing, like I I had a I had a loft uh, on Twenty Eighth Street, and my my it was funky. <laughs> you know, I won't <laughs> I won't tell you it wasn't funky, uh, but it was one hundred and twenty bucks a month.
0: Oh my god!
1: And gigs gigs paid. Uh, Not you know, paid okay. I mean,
0: like fifty bucks a night or something, right?
1: Well, yeah, sometimes that. Something. I was working a lot. Well, I mean, I was doing a lot of different gigs, and it It's like it's just like now, the prices varied. Like I went out and did a concert with Lee Konitz at the time and it paid
0: $350. That is so beautiful. $350 that's, that's, was that's, three that's, months
1: rent. Sick.
0: That's unbelievable.
1: <laughs> and and then I was working at the uh, Surf Maid, which was a little club across the street from the Village Gate. It was a little uh, seafood restaurant that had jazz duos, because a lot of people don't know this, and really, it's quite an uh, uh, astounding situation. You were not allowed to have drums, vocalists, or horn players in a club unless they had a uh, disco license.
0: Unbelievable!
1: And it's just classic. So in New York was you know New York was pretty weird. So if you played tenor, if, if they could close the club and put a padlock on it if if you um, had those instruments. But you could have a guitar in there with five amplifiers, and it it would be fine.
0: Let's go back. Just to say, no drums, no horn. What what were the other instruments? Uh,
1: well, I think. Uh, oh yeah, you were allowed a vocalist, but like if I'm, <laughs> this is how severe and stupid it was. So don't always think of New York as being as hip as it. As I I, like did, it I, to yeah, be. Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, I If you, I was playing with a piano player, and the piano player sang. When the piano player sang, the piano player was not allowed to play the piano, because you're only allowed to have two musicians.
0: Oh my gosh, that's a little uptight. That's
1: how, how messed up it was. So at the
0: seafood restaurant, that's, that's how it was?
1: Yeah, well, no, it was all over the city. Wow. Not just there.
0: Well, hold on. But I used distance,
1: to play at yeah. Bradley's used to be like that. I played at Bradley's. I remember going into Bradley's book for a month, and it was all duo. Uh, everything oh. was duo uh, because it was just piano bass, which I, for me was good. Because I could work. But a lot of horn players really couldn't work that much around the city. I mean they could work at the village Vanguard, they could work at some of the jazz clubs that had, you know, kind of grandfathered in licenses. But really that was that was the way it was. Um and, and I worked at the Surf Maid, I would check this out. I was playing there six nights a week. It paid fifteen dollars a night plus dinner. And I needed the dinner. Yes. And it was six hours a night.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, but how many sets is that? Six sets?
1: We at least do four or five sets. Oh, gosh.
0: The disco, I just want to go back for a minute. Like, the Village Gate had a disco. Like, what qualified to be a disco hall? I mean, did, did some like you said, some it, of them...
1: It was a very hard license to get. So, I think somehow the village gate had some kind of a license where, you know, it might have been grandfathered in. I don't know
0: all the details. I, I did. So it, maybe when they made that that law or whatever, some of the institutions that have been around for a long time got grandfathered in, so so to speak.
1: It's possible you know, right. that that happened. I'm fast, but... This is
0: absolutely fascinating to me. Maybe because yep. of the, I just want to say, I mean, going on a limb here. Because they because a lot of these restaurants or clubs maybe had residential people living above them and they didn't want that rhythm, the, the, the drums and the horns and stuff?
1: Well here's the thing is it was the you know, look at let's face it, you know, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, I don't care what you are, the politicians always do the wrong thing. That's right. You know, they're always doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Uh so um basically it was kind of like that so basically they had two ways it was a you, if you had a disco license uh i don't know if that was called it was a, 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 some kind of if that was the actual some
0: name. kind of permit or something yeah but I it was it. like a
1: permit to have drums and and do that <laughs> then you could open up like a major dance hall
0: right
1: and there, there was no in between you either had that license which cost a fortune and very hard to get or you had nothing. And uh, it was against it until, you know, until maybe I, I, 15, 20 years ago, it was against the law. And I mean, seriously against the law.
0: They, pad, they padlocked it, yeah.
1: No, no, to dance in a club. Really? Did you know that?
0: I didn't know it was recently I, as recently as this century. I didn't know that. Oh,
1: it wasn't that long ago. I used to play in, in the, um, in the mid to late 90s, I used to do a lot of Latin stuff. So maybe it was more like 20, 25, 30 years ago, which is not long ago. Uh, I used um, used to play in this Latin club, which was across the New Eurekan Cafe. Uh, It was a small little club, and uh, I used to play, you know, like, play like Latin stuff, you know, because I'm really into that. And sometimes people would get up and dance, you know, because the stuff was cooking, you know, people loved, you know, it was just a small little place. Well, you know, next thing I knew, they they had gotten a warning saying, if you do any more dancing, we're going to have to close you. Somebody, people got up and danced. They had inspectors in there. They busted them and they padlocked the place and put them out of business because they let people dance.
0: I mean... Um, this so, is New York City, and you're talking mid '90s.
1: Yeah, mid to late '90s. I don't know how. I don't think it's that way anymore. But there was. I mean, there was a. I mean, a strict, and I'm talking strict rule. People went around looking in clubs to see if they had were using a horn player or drums, and if you were, they'll close the club or padlock them or give them, give you a huge find, even if the drummer was just playing uh, brushes. What we used to do with the surf, made, we had a film can that, that uh, and brushes and drummers would sometimes come in and play a little bit of, on the side oh, kid would play a little bit of This brushes. is so beautiful. Well, this is the greatest
0: story. I'm I mean, One of the greatest stories of 2022 so far from RBS, dude. I, I, <laughs> it, but I mean, well, <laughs> I, I can't make this stuff up. Oh, it's beautiful. I, it, I mean, it, but, you know, and I know you don't have the total answer, but is it just the the Eurocentric, Western, classicalized music that they fundamentally did not want to have rhythm? I, I, I don't understand what the issue, what, well, the dancing thing is also very peculiar, but I, I don't understand what the issue was unless, because this sounds to me like what was going on in, you know, in Mid- Europe or something, you know, where it was just, you just wanted to classicalize it. This
1: was stupidity. <laughs> well, it's just like, look at in the early days, New York used to have the cabaret license. You well, know all about well, that, big time. Right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Stan Getz That was well, a big,
1: yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Billy Holiday, Charlie Parker, you know, Bud Powell, they couldn't play in a club in New York. They could play in a concert hall. Uh, but any place that served alcohol, they weren't allowed to play.
0: That's really, Stan Getz lost his uh, his cabaret card because of his debauchery. You're absolutely right. Go
1: ahead. So you know, I'm saying there's always been this idiotic stupidity uh, among the politicians doing stuff like that. And you know, it's like they don't understand. You know, these are people that you got to understand. You have to understand. They don't know anything about music or about this, the 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 scene. Or anything, so they make up a law. Well, we just won't have drums, you know. Then people won't be able to dance, uh, you know. Uh, so that I was like the ra-
0: that was the rationale. That that's that's the stupidity. Yeah, right there. Yeah.
1: Now, now, when I played in that club with the dancing, they had now, I, I, from what I remember, my good friend Mark Morganelli, who owns the Jazz Forum. Oh
0: uh, yeah, uh, great cat.
1: Mark is, you know, one of my favorite people, and 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 Mark, I think, is. A lot of people don't credit him for this, and I will. He <laughs> got together with a lawyer. They sued the city and found that law, that cabaret law, to be unconstitutional, which it was, and uh, that broke that law.
0: Morganelli was on a on a, on a judicial crusade, uh, on a he, litigious. Yeah, he crusade. hired a
1: he hired a a lawyer, or he got together with a lawyer from from. I can't remember from New York University or some, you know, someone that really knew the law. And they brought a suit against New York City and they declared that that idiotic law uh, unconstitutional.
0: So Harvey S playing the playing the surf and turf. You're, you're getting your meals, 15 bucks a night, six, four to five sets a night. Do you remember? And the I prompt- could live on that. Absolutely. Easy. <laughs> Not easy,
1: but I could do it.
0: Um, like, was there, uh, was there some kind of, uh, you know, what was the status of, uh, where did you live again? Lower West Side, is
1: that right? I I had a place on Twenty Eighth Street, but the thing is, also at that time there was a big, um, studio scene. Absolutely, and and I was, I was playing a lot of electric bass, and I was doing a lot of, uh, I was also. Uh, getting in the studio scene. I was doing like, you know, I was recording with, I actually recorded a lot with James Brown. I I, I recorded some movie scores. Uh, you know, I wasn't the top studio guy because every time I kind of moved up the ladder doing studio work, I would get a tour and go out on the road for, you know, we'd go out for a month or six weeks, and then all, they called me for all these recordings. I did a lot of jingles, you know, commercials. Sure. Uh, but 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 then once they call you and you're not available, uh, then you go to the bottom of the list. Absolutely.
0: Well, that's why a lot of cats never took those road gigs because they didn't want to lose their spot in L.A. or New York or whatever. How did you? crack. That was not an easy scene to crack, though. Who, were you hanging out at Jim and Andy's and got a got a call? How did you get into the studio scene to begin with?
1: Well, actually, when I came to the city right away, I started working in the studios. And quite truthfully, yeah. I wasn't that prepared to do that. Because I, I was just strictly a jazz bass player. Yeah. You know, I mean, I knew how to play funk and rock. Uh, but I was really just a jazz and I wasn't a studio guy. I, I I mean I got into a studio and suddenly they put me in a booth with headphones with a click track, and and I went I don't work I never used a click track in my life, so like uh, but eventually I I you know I studied <laughs> with the metronome so that I could could do that stuff but it it was you know it was one of the funniest things I, I you know here I am like I'm I'm such a hardcore jazz guy you know and <clears throat> now I'm in I'm in the studio and we're doing some kind of rock funk tune and I'm in the studio with Steve Gad and Joe Farrell I love this they're show. on the date and they 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 put us in a booth the three of us and we did what they call the clap track so here I'm in the studio with with my you know like you know, these guys, I'm like, you know, I gone to see Joe Farrell with Elf and, you know, and he's like, you know, one of my huge heroes. And I, I was just a kid and I'm sitting there clapping uh, on, on a rock record with Joe Farrell and Steve Gadd. It was <laughs> a this is, but this is, this
0: is, this is, this is the way I sort of, it was a little bit, uh, well, it was actually kind of beautiful. You're telling me you just showed up at, at a, like did did you get into radio registry i mean to me i used it, to
1: be in radio registry yes i was uh in radio i'm just radio saying registry.
0: like the studio scene was humming along for decades before harvey s got there i i cannot believe you just waltzed into the studio scene
1: well i like i said i wasn't the big cat but they but were of usually. course
0: not but you were getting getting
1: calls oh, oh i i mean if i had not wanted to tour and travel uh i think i could have moved up the ladder there uh
0: who, so what was when you first got? What was some of the early mid seventies touring? You who was did, you didn't? I mean you, you played on Brown record. You didn't tour with James Brown, I would assume.
1: No 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 no, that was just strictly studio stuff. Sure. I just did, did stuff in the studio. Probably my name. I'm sure my name's not on it. And I did it with Steve Gad a lot of times. Jimmy Madison.
0: Like, Jimmy Madison, the filthiest drummer, dude. Yeah, no, that. Do you have any idea what what albums you were on?
1: No, I have no idea. I used to just go in record. They would just have tracks. That's right. One, it's right. two. Yeah. I play on it. I did a lot of his ballads because uh, they kind of had some funk guys they like to use. But I did some funk. But I did a lot of his ballads. Um, but I have no idea. And I, I did the, I did the score to a movie called Black Caesar.
0: No, you didn't. That's my favorite soundtrack of all time.
1: Get out of
0: here! I'm dude. That
1: I've my, never heard it. Do you know that I've never heard it? Ron Carter's on it too.
0: Harvey, get a copy immediately. It is the greatest. It's you know I have I I have not I've never had, heard it. it. It's burning. It's burning. It's burning. And I <laughs> you know I that was during that black exploitation era. You know I mean I just unbelievable that. You, and definitely, companies were not credited on that album. So that right, is, but
1: I'm on it, and I know Ron Carter did some of it, and that's I don't know if he played sick. acoustic or electric on it. I have no idea, but I I know that I'm on the record. Uh But I, well, I, again, I mean, you got to
0: yeah, you should. I mean, I don't know. uh I got to find you a copy of that. That's... Well, so maybe you... I can. Yeah. I'll,
1: I'm sure I can find it on YouTube. But the, and... yeah, the question anyway... is, what
0: tracks were you on? But that that's on. Un... Yeah. Believable,
1: yeah. But at that time, I, I was doing a lot of touring with, uh you know, a band that a lot of I never got the credit for this, hmm. but I was a co-leader and founder of the band Double Image.
0: That's you know what? I'll, let's talk about that. We didn't get it. I'm glad you brought that up. Talk about how that band formed. That was with David Friedman.
1: Yeah, David Friedman and I were playing a lot of gigs together, wow. and. uh you know i made a bunch of records with him on indie records and um it, it, he had you know he wanted to do some stuff with like uh, with dave samuels who would also play vibes and marimba and the idea was to you know mix those two up and they needed a drummer so uh but i, I didn't want to get a bebop drummer because the music we played was absolutely no swing no jazz swing in it
0: mm. Uh, mm.
1: So I found this guy who, who could play swing, but was more open, liked to play kind of percussion. This guy, Mike DePasqua, and uh, unfortunately, Mike uh, and David have both passed away. Um, but anyway, we, we did this band, we we made a record, we we toured Europe a lot. In fact, we really were on the on the on a fast path to be one of the top jazz groups in the world. Uh, it, 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 we we. We can we we were up for a Grammy in the in the Europe because we're mostly in europe working you know the the German Grammys, whatever they are called, but we lost uh we came in second this guy beat us out and and it's very hard to live with uh, <laughs> some guy named Keith Jarrett have you ever heard of him
0: no. yeah I, don't, I wouldn't be ashamed be imagine
1: out. imagine <laughs> losing to Keith Jarrett. How can you live that down? <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, But first of all, I got to go back for a second. say, I understand that the, your music was consumed in Europe. But can you talk about, like, the early gigs you guys would have in New York? I mean, first of all, double vibes, marimba vibes. With we, we didn't
1: work. We didn't hardly work at all in New York. We played a week at a club called Hopper's. And then you know we did a few little things around New York. It was mostly pack up, and you know it was a, a whole other world. I mean, no. The could, question, the
0: question I have is, yeah, yeah. is like, uh, was 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 David already had a lot of connections over in Europe already? I'm trying to figure out how you got momentum to begin with. I mean, obviously, this is like pre weather report. Maybe no, no, it's not. No, no. you know, like it was a very. Very percussive. Like, the only thing that kind of reminds me is that M Boom with Max Roach, you know, with all that percussion. But, um, like, how did how did you get, how, who had the connections in Europe?
1: Well, well, we recorded with NG Records, and they and they uh, they used to set up tours in Europe. Wow. Uh, and and we, you know, the, people were just the, they loved this band. I mean, we we were really popular. We did, you know, we headlined at the Berlin Festival and. You know all the major festivals, and we were touring like crazy. But it was it was really I mean I could never do it, that again. We were touring like, I mean I, I mean I could write a book on on the, the the way. Check this out. We would go we would go to Europe. We would take vibes marimba with us. A full drum set with all the percussion. Oh my. A, a check a base and a base amp. We would fly with that to Europe, and then we would get a huge van. Now, in the old days we didn't have, uh, you know. I mean, it would, we weren't making a ton of money. I'll tell you. We, no, I don't but, believe you were. Yeah. But but we were making enough to make it work, and we we would have to. I mean, t- we would load this stuff into a van, and it fit like. Barely fit, you know, the, the whole thing. We had to take the hard base case and everything into this van. We had to do it ourselves. And we do 31 nighters. My God. At which we drove. So we'd have to drive, get there, unload the van, which took an hour, set up the, the stuff, which took an hour or two. Then we'd play the concert. And then we'd have to pack everything up, which took another hour. And then we'd have to load the truck another hour or two, or whatever. And then we'd get in the van and we'd drive 20 hours to, to the next place. I mean, and we did. The I,
0: you know, I want to I stop you for a second because this is, I mean, I understand at this point, <laughs> you know, you're playing zinc with broadband. You know, you're you oh, never, I'm playing tonight. I know you are. No, I, I would yeah. not. I, I mean, it's going to be amazing. But and I know you wouldn't do it now. But what I'm you told <laughs> what you just described not saying it's the same music but what you just described is the true road dog experience that's happening today uh, you know maybe not 30 hour drives but sprinter vans huge amounts of equipment packing it in disco ball got to set everything up at the venue you play the gig you got to pack it all up and you got you to and you're basically playing 30 gigs in 33 33 days it's not stone jazz gigs. It's not, I don't, I don't even know what, what I would call your uh, double image music, but the point is um, that's exactly, that was the road dog. Ex- that is the road dog experience. And I know at the time, even though you wouldn't do it today, you were definitely, I mean, there were some hard, it's hard days, but I think it, you were, you guys were having a ball. Well,
1: now it, you know, it, it, it had its, good points you know at least musically uh it definitely worked did out did you
0: did you did you guys before, I have one of those albums i feel it was on it's the one with the black cover with red on it
1: yeah that one is called dawn that that's the record we did for we left endure records which was a mistake. It was on ecm right and we went on ecm and by the time that record was getting done, the band was, we were not getting along between. Oh. And, uh, and that record is like, I gotta say, I had very little to do with. And.
0: Uh, and so you don't, don't, it's hard for you to listen to it. I,
1: I, I don't think I ever. Did well, you listen never
0: listen to, to Black Caesar either. We got to get that in your ears.
1: Yeah, I never listen to
0: it. So I'm um, no, you know what, when, when the band, <laughs> this is something I talked to with Mark Egan about when, with, was related to
1: Mark was doing the same thing with Pat we used to No be... no this is a
0: the question I really want you to talk cuz this is so important uh with the Matheny group and it was also this is a page out of uh the Grateful Dead uh book where uh the Dead for instance uh spent did not go into the studio for 7 years they road tested they they let they made they they created these new songs, Matheny did as well with Egan and Gottlieb and Mays. And before they would record them, they would go out extensively and and road and road test these songs. And in doing so, certain tunes took on a new life of their own so that then when they were ready to go into the studio, it was really locked in. Whereas now you have so many cats who go in and record and then go. Two those songs. How did you guys, when the band was really hot—not '79, but early on—did you guys do something similar where you would allow original tunes to take on a life of their own and then record them?
1: Well, when, by the time we recorded our first record on Enja, which uh, you know we had been playing this stuff for a year, probably, right? And and there were never any charts. We developed <laughs> the music on our own and everything was like, you know, oh, I think tonight, why don't you add this, or why don't we do this, and and we, we would just rehearse each tune and go over parts. Uh, you know, there might have been a lead sheet at the beginning, but that's about it. And then, you know, we just, we developed. It was, the first record we did, the one on Enja it's just called Double Image. I mean, I think if you listen to that record, now it could sound like it could have been recorded yesterday. It's, really, it's, I'm really proud, really proud of that. Record. Now, why do you
0: say and that? Because we had this. I, I want you to talk about that because we talked in the. You're saying miking the whole feel could have sounded like a a Harvey S. record today, not your typical record today. record
1: Well, actually, I, I we recorded uh, with that amazing engineer Martin Veland, uh, You know where they did a lot of the you know ECM records, sure the early ECM records and uh i think he did a beautiful job and and we basically you know like we arrived at the studio after driving like you know 15 hours you know whatever and and went in and and recorded it and, and no uh, yeah we recorded it like late in the afternoon when i think we went way late into the evening to like midnight but mostly first second takes sure and and you know we had to set everything up and do the whole recording thing, which is always you know you have to set up to a couple of hours, and then after that we packed up, got right in the van, and drove to the next town to keep playing. Oh, uh, right. and uh, but but that tune had a great. I mean that record had a, a, a beautiful energy. You would so, say
0: that that early on that you'd already been playing a ton of gigs before you got in the studio, but the the tunes. You never played the same song the same way once, right? I mean, no, all... no, no.
1: Well, uh, I mean, we had a structure we worked with, mm-hmm. no question. But of course, you know, there was, you know, like jazz. I mean, there was a lot of open space sure, to create yeah. and and do things. But yeah, I mean, that was it. I mean, it was a pretty amazing band. Uh, and uh, you know, it, sorry, it didn't work out. We, you know, basically uh, kind of broke up because, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you Put A band together and it's uh, a co op, you end up with four people, four leaders. We were all leaders of that mm-hmm. band. A lot of people think Dave Sanders and Dave Friedman were the leaders. They were not. Let's make that clear.
0: It was communal.
1: It was, I was a part, I was 25% of the leadership of that band. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that would, it didn't, you know, it didn't work out. Let's just skip there. Well,
0: but, it, you know, it did for a while, but it didn't, you know, it didn't last maybe as long as it could ever. you know, I mean, the shelf life of it. I, you know, go, going back to the, to the Dawson Stern gig, can you talk about, I mean, that sounded like a rock show or something. By the third night, people must have been losing their minds.
1: Well, it was, you know, it was like, it was those days where, like, you know, let's be real. I would let's put it this way. I <laughs> wouldn't say there weren't drugs in that room.
0: I, I, I did. I, I, I did. I, I, you know, it was mid eighty, 80, early eighties. A lot of, yeah, it was just there was so much heavy drug use everywhere.
1: Yeah, that the, the 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 audience was was hyped up, and, and, <laughs> and, and that is and the greatest were, thing in the world, man. And but you know that we it was it was great to play jazz and have that kind of an audience. Not a big place, uh, but it was like standing room only. You could barely move in there, um, and uh, it was. It, I think we were doing three sets a night. I can't re- I can't remember now if it was two sets or three. I think it was three sets, but uh, yeah, because I I have I have like thirty five tunes or something. Uh, we played a lot of music, and, and you know, we just, you know, we, we, we. When I booked the gig, you know, I just said to Alan, "Don't worry about it, you know, just show up, and we'll play." And so he said, "You know, we got the." Of course, Alan was like the the, the, you know, the most together. You know, you, you don't meet a, a nicer guy or, or more together cat than Alan Dawson. Mm-hmm. So he was there way before us there, tuning up his drums, setting up. He was ready. So Mike and I get there, we set up, and Mike just starts calling tunes.
0: That were were you playing were you playing upright or electric? Upright. Upright. Yeah, I was gonna say, like uh, Dawson had like a kind of a, a Bebop kit in that sense. He brought that kind of kit. I mean, it's just it's fascinating because I just saw Mike Clark this weekend play, and we did an interview backstage after the game. I'm playing with Mike on Thursday. (laughs) That's so, dude. Tell, dude, he'll. Me and him just had a ball. I love Mike.
1: Mike is one of the greatest.
0: But he he talked about, um, you know, early on with Herbie when he, you know, after Harvey Mason decided to stay in the studios, like we talked about, instead of going on tour, Mike Clark got the gig through Paul Jackson and. Early those early headhunters gigs, he was playing a bop set, and then uh, the music was getting so loud that he had to get a bigger set. He got uh, Lenny White's Lenny White's uh, Gretsch drum set, eighteen-inch bass drum that he had with Return to Forever. He needed a bigger uh, uh, drum set. You didn't, you never strike me, even though you weren't thrilled about playing other types of music. You don't strike me as a jazz purist per se. Even though you love the music.
1: Be assured, I am not.
0: You are not. So how but I want you to talk to how did you deal with um just sort of in specifically in that that time period of the 70s when rock was really sinking its teeth in, FM radio was coming in, jazz was definitely losing a foot big foothold as a popular music and the and the and the sonic nature of the music was just incredibly increased and and I wanted to know how you dealt with that especially if you were on a gig that was really loud and you were playing a string bass
1: well it was it was difficult so I ended up I mean I was playing a lot of gigs on electric bass and you know I was with Barry Miles I was with probably One of the first, if not the first, fusion bands. Barry
0: Miles was the first fusion cat. The first fusion cat.
1: Well, I was the bass player in that, and I was playing electric bass in that band. I recorded uh, two albums with
0: them. With 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 Silverlake? Yeah. Oh, this is dude! I cannot believe you uh, did you. That's a pioneer. Those are fusion is. Were you on that record? What album? What albums did you? No, the records I'm on is Magic Theater. And um, one called Barry
1: Miles and Silverlight, both on London Records.
0: Dude, I dude, I know both those records. How the heck, those were done overseas? Barry told me about those sessions, but
1: No, how... I did the we did those in, in New York.
0: But they were released on a on a British label or something or, or... Well London.
1: London uh London Records. London Records. Um so anyway I don't I... know. No, but I think it was I, I truly don't know.
0: So, but no, go back to the question. Just talk about how you dealt. You play, you were playing a lot of gigs on electric bass, but once, I mean, it's just the amps got bigger and the the PA systems went from being antiquated to like these sonic systems. And I just I wonder how you. I dealt. was using
1: a fuzz tone. I um, was using a wah wah pedal. I love I, it. And I was a Mutron endorser. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my god yeah you were doing it like what everybody else was doing i mean that's what it was yeah i mean why not you know i mean i
1: i you know as marlon brando said i'll try anything twice
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know uh but i mean as it
0: related to the <clears throat> to jazz uh you know because a lot of cats, I mean, it just, it, it, the music got so loud. I just wonder how it impacted, in your mind, what we consider to be straight ahead jazz. That, that sonic, like that, that, that the, the loudness of the music and how it increased sonically. Well,
1: you know, what can I say? You know, this stuff was, I have to say, this stuff was loud.
0: Yeah.
1: And I had a big amplifier.
0: <laughs> you were leading the pack, you and, were,
1: and, and yeah. unfortunately, I lived on a three floor walk up, oh, and getting that amplifier down the stairs was hard, and getting it back up was
0: I don't was know how worse. you did it. There was no elevator, obviously.
1: No, it was a it was a funky loft, and and I had to carry that thing up a real skinny stairway.
0: And <laughs> did was Gil Evans around at that time?
1: I was working with Gillip.
0: Talk a little, because you know there was a whole. This is a little bit, mm. but not really. There was like a big co-op down on the west side of musicians could live that was rent controlled. I a, was,
1: I was there.
0: I was okay, so that was part. Car, okay, like yeah. See, that's yeah. magic to me. I mean, I don't, it's lame. They wouldn't allow drums and saxes in seafood restaurants, but yet here's this this enclave of musician housing in, in the greatest city in the world. I mean, I, I don't know. Is, so yeah, Gil, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Gil lived down in Westbeth. Um, and yeah, I was there a bunch of times and used to hang out with Gil. Um,
0: Did you get to play in the big band and sub for Bushler once in a while?
1: I got the gig after Bushler. Oh, this is I, Me and Bruce Ditmas. Uh, oh, because Bruce, Bruce, Bruce and I were playing a lot together and Bruce you know, got me on the gig, and I was working with, for about a year, I worked with Gil, and, uh, but then I got busy with other things, and, and, uh, you know, it was a little, I hate to say it, it was a little too rock, (laughs) you know, it was, it was not really what I wanted to do, because it was, you know, it was more, well, because it's
0: fair to say that he was trying to make a commercial, a little more commercial music, make a little more, I don't know
1: what he was doing, but I mean, for me, like, Gil Evans was like you know the stuff they did with Miles. Oh, forget it. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I can listen to that any time, and it always sounds fresh and great to me. But later on, the stuff was good. I mean, Gil, of course, was like one of the greatest musicians. But it really, I got to be truthful. It's not what I wanted to do, but I did it. You know, I I did do it. We played the Bottom Line. I used to play, you know, a bunch of you know. I used to play a lot at the Bottom Line with him. And you know, I did the gig for a while, and it it, it it was fun. I was playing. I would bring my electric and my acoustic and the big amp. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> like
0: <laughs> and no, I was sh- that thing. Was- Sleeping in a cab. Do you do, do you? Uh, do, are you are you uh, friendly at all with? Uh, well, I mean, the guy played with Broadbent every day, but Hutter Smith. You know, I don't know part of that
1: well because he's he lived he. he mostly from the west coast you're absolutely
0: right no this is a great story he showed up that woody herman uh needed a sub for his gig in la this is going back in the 70s right around that time and putter showed up with a string string bass and he's like where's your electric dude you know like nobody was it really was like that whole phasing into the electric bass in jazz and then right around that time i mean i know Gil was doing he did that album that never, he never, you know, he, he, it was a tribute album to Jimi Hendrix. W- were you guys playing like fusion big band music? I mean, it, it kind of, I know you weren't, it wasn't your, it wasn't Birth of the Cool stuff, but I think I would have gotten off on that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, what can I say? That, that, that was a time where, you know, Things were happening a certain way. And it just, like I said, wasn't what I wanted to do. So I kind of had to, you know, I just had other other work to that I was doing. Is that,
0: is, after that, is that when you started playing with brother Dave Matthews at the new five spot?
1: Well, uh, I think during that time, maybe. Wow, I don't you were know. Busy I played with Dave time. Matthews for about it must have been at least five, six, seven years. It was a long time I played in that band. We had a steady gig um at Strikers Pub, which was on eighty sixth street. Oh. Uh we played there for like every Monday night for years. And then we we uh I think that's when we moved then afterwards Strikers closed or something and then we went to to the uh, five spot. No, you know something. We worked the five spot first. They closed. Then we went to Strikers because uh, the first record I made with Dave Matthews, which was on Muse Records, it was called Dave Matthews Live at the Five Spot.
0: I, I am I'm desperate to find that. Like Black Caesar for you. I, I I will never pass up that record again. I need to find it. RBS on base. I think Jimmy Madison was. It was Jim- on- Sam Brown. Dude, dude, monster player. Monster. I mean, that band must have been on fire. It was always, I love that band.
1: And Dave is such a great writer. Dude,
0: the man is a and genius.
1: Then, and, and, and that's how I think I got on the James Brown dates, because he was James Brown's guy.
0: Absolutely. You know, well, he he I, mean, <laughs> I just interviewed him in, in a few times in Japan, and he said that uh, it was actually at that point, that's when Cree Taylor came in and heard him and that then Cree brought him over for sort of those mid to late seventies records that I think you might have been a part of like art farmer. Yeah.
1: I'm on the art farmer. It was Art crawl space and, or something. And, and then, then we made another one with, uh, Stig uh, Grover, Grover Washington jr. Yeah. Latif. Uh, uh, and uh, we did that band. Schofield played on some of those records and Jim uh. Madison, um, and and uh, yeah,
0: was that and your first? I, I played
1: electric like, bass on on a lot of those. I albums, love believe on, on you, those, those
0: albums. It, it's amazing once you flip the script. Early '70s C.P.I. always upright. Maybe maybe not always, but mostly. Then after all the stuff with Matthews and you, Madison always electric bass. Was that the first time that you went into the hallowed grounds of Rudy Van Gelder Studios? Uh, Let me think. Well,
1: actually, (laughs) the first record I ever made at Rudy's was when I first moved to New York City. I used to play with Jackie and Roy. Oh, And uh, they were on CTI. They
0: certainly were.
1: And I I guess I had some balls at the time. Because (laughs) uh, uh, I, I, you know, you know what was happening is I was doing all these gigs with Jackie and Roy. I was, We went to California, went to Chicago, we were working around a lot, and I knew that music so well. And it was some nice stuff. I mean you know, that was a, that was some nice stuff. So anyway, uh, Roy said, well we're going to make a record for CTI, and, um, but we can't use you on the record, because they want to use Ron Carter. So I got real mad because I had been doing all this work. You know? I would be pissed, and too. I get it. No, I get it. So I, so I said, look at Roy. I quit. You get Ron Carter for your gigs. Whoa. And I hung up on him. <laughs>
0: Holy cow. That's so, balls, dude. I love
1: that. So, so uh, you know, it was a little ballsy but I had other things I was doing. I said, I, I just didn't, I felt really hurt. and
0: You know, because, I respected that. I compl- I, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, by the way, thanks for, you know, all your blood, sweat and tears on the bandstand. But, you know, we're going to bring in Ron, you know, I mean, that... Because, you, you know, you-
1: they like Ron Carter and all those records. So anyway, what happened was, um, an hour later, Roy calls me back and he says, "Okay, you're on the record."
0: <laughs> you see, you called it. You call. You called his bluff on that, dude. And they're like, "Yeah, oh, yeah. So, uh, so, so I did the first
1: record on on, on CTI. Was that him.
0: the one with like the rock on it or something? I think I, I know that's that. the one. I know I wrote, that. I, a that's wild, how, that was,
1: yes, a wilder alias.
0: Oh, now that was your
1: first studio session in New York. That was my first studio session. It was with. Uh oh, Steve Gadd,
0: really well, yes. unbelievable. Joe
1: Farrell, Hubert Laws, uh and a, a vibist who kinda of disappeared off the scene, Roy Pennington, and and uh he Roy just played on I think one song. And and anyway we, we did that record.
0: Was that a, and that was at Ben Gelder?
1: Yeah. Yes. And we, we, you know, and I don't want to get into it, but that was an experience. Oh, man. Um, I, I, I kind of gonna... I, I
0: liked it. Were you playing, was it all, were, were there baffles? Was it everybody at the same, t- maybe it was just too much drama. I don't know.
1: Uh, there was baffles and I was in an area to do it. So that, that I did that record. And then, but the funniest thing is yeah. I finished the record well actually well I'm actually I've got stories I'm not going to tell uh, actually when 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 that's when the record was done like a, two weeks later, this guy comes over to me and he says, "Man, I just heard you on the new Jackie record, and you sound great on that and I said, "That's impossible. How could that record come out in two weeks <laughs> that that just i said i said, "Are you sure?" He says, yeah, 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 I got the record. And then it turns out it was a record came out that I didn't know I was recorded. Uh, It was a thing I did live at the Masonette with Jackie Paris and Anne-Marie Moss. And it was, uh, uh, originally it was just supposed to be a, Demo. We did a. Actually, there's somewhere which right. probably is lost. There's a video of that, uh, and it was me, Steve Gad, and Micah Benny trio with Jackie Paris and Anne-Marie Moss called Live Live at the Maisonette. Uh, and and we and what had happened is and and the thing is because of all the schlepping and all getting into Midtown and I figured it was just more of a demo, so it wasn't that big of a deal. I brought my Fender. Precision with me, right? And I did the whole record on Fender Precision.
0: But I you didn't did know the you, whole gig. Clear, you didn't know you were being recorded.
1: Well, I knew it was being recorded for this uh, video. Yeah, uh, you know, video. But yeah. I, it was more of it was a demo for some jazz show. Oh. And and God. and but they they said we're not using this. We just want, it's like a demo. So we you know I so I did it, and then I found out that they released it as a, as a as a record and uh, it's it actually came out great and uh but the thing is i didn't know of course i didn't get paid either
0: <laughs> and, well, wait i i'm sorry this was uh, it came out on a, on a on a i mean there were a lot of labels back then you're telling me this guy that came up to you had like a test pressing of it he had a it was a bootleg no like, this was a real release do you remember what what the label was
1: you know, you'd you have to look it up. It's, I'll it's, look it up. And it's what was, very the, what was easy to look it up? What was
0: uh, the Masonette? What was the Masonette? It was, like
1: a, it was a, you know, the uh, some big hotel, the Masonette room. It's still there, I think. Dude,
0: I got it. This is Bert, and you're telling me you were actually, even though you didn't get paid, you didn't know it is. Well, burnt. I got
1: paid. I got paid to do what I did that day. I did, but I didn't get paid rec- for for the recording, uh, and it's a classic recording now. In fact, they did a documentary on Jackie Paris, and that was the main music for the whole documentary. Um, and and uh, it's kind of and Mark Myers did a big feature on that record. You can look that up. I'm gonna. Yeah, will have
0: to look. That is so. That was so. Actually, that's what the guy was talking about. And the right. So I was so
1: confused, <laughs> and then I found oh, so now I, my first two records with with Jackie's. <laughs> I, so the
0: alias record came out later, but that was your first. Yeah, it came order. out
1: later, but that yeah. was my first official studio date record.
0: You do me a favor. I know you got to hop. Please yeah, tell, gotta go in a, tell. go. You tell Broadbent. Uh, please send my love to Broadbent, and you tell Mike as well. Because I just, I mean, last two, to three nights ago, we were hanging backstage after the gig, uh, hamming it up. So have a great week, Harvey, and I'll get. And I promise. We'll get this interview up. I won't fuck this one up.
1: <laughs> okay, good. Well, don't worry about it. It was a completely different interview than the last one.
0: Exactly. Yeah, everything goes off in its own direction. Now.
1: But yeah, it's fun. I hadn't talked about these kind of things in a long time and uh, brought back a lot of uh, memories. And, and uh, you know, I try to live in the present, but sometimes it's, it's nice. You know, I'll tell you a very quick story. Oh yes. There was a famous guitar player. I won't mention his name. And uh, he was very big in the studios and you know he was very successful. But then times changed and he got, you know he really had hard times, he wasn't getting any gigs and everything was not really good for him. So a friend of, so somebody ran into him and said, hey, uh, how you doing? He says, yeah, well, he said, uh, you know, where are you living now? And he, he looked at the guy and he says, mostly in the past. <laughs> So today I was living in the past. Well, yeah,
0: but I think a lot of it is also, uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely for you it is. But so much of the camaraderie, uh, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, and sort of the um, and the people that you that you cross paths with, Gil Evans, uh, Alan Dawson, this stuff is vital for my generation and future generations. And my show is all about promotion; it's not about preservation. So. Uh, but I'm glad you had a ball, and I knew we'd go off in a different direction. And, uh, right, yeah, man, just had a great
1: weekend. We just played in uh, Chicago with Sheila Jordan. Uh, I didn't even talk about that. There's a lot to talk about. Oh, well,
0: about. Yeah, we, I mean, we'll, let's do another. We can do another
1: set. Let me just do,
0: let me I get this one up, one, you know. Yeah, we'll do another one. But I mean, you're a busy cat, go swing your butt off and have a ball. Yeah,
1: I'm looking forward to it. So thanks so much. I'm gonna pack, I'm, pack my base and I'm on the road. All right, oh, man, it'd be cool, man. All right. You know, keep in touch. Let me know what's happening.
0: Love always, Harvey. Thanks, Jake. Be well. Bye-bye.